welcome to the AOL podcast. Let's dive right into this week's message. We, uh, we're going to jump right into lesson number six, A Whole New Day in Heaven. That's what it's entitled tonight. And remember our theme, the main thing is that the main thing remains the main thing. Jesus is the main thing. Now we'll have one more um, Bible school session, which will be next Wednesday, and then we'll break for the holiday season. Uh, starting on the 22nd, we won't have anything here on the 22nd through the, and then we'll have first Wednesday on in December, and that'll be it for until January. We won't have any more Bible study, just for your information. So we do have one more lesson seven next week, and it'll be interesting because then we start opening the seals um, and and see what's happening in heaven at that time. So anyway, a recap from from lesson five, and. Uh, uh, we, we went off kind of the reservation a bit, as I put it here, uh, to discuss the 70th week of Daniel, a crucial passage in Daniel 9, 24 through 7, 27. That is key to understanding and interpreting the book of Revelation. You just can't, it's just hard to, it, you can't understand Revelation without Daniel. It's just, it, it's impossible to have a right interpretation, I believe. So, and in summary, the angel Gabriel addressed Daniel as he was praying concerning a previous vision to give him understanding and God's plan for the people of Israel, 70 weeks, of, uh, 77s of weeks, years, 490 years have been determined to accomplish his divine plan for Israel. And from the passage, we can see that 483 years have been accomplished up to and including Jesus, the Messiah on the cross. One week of years or a seven-year tribulation is left to complete, thus the 70th week of prophecy. The gap of pause, or pause between the crucifixion and the beginning of the tribulation is what we call the church age the dispensation of grace. We are now now looking at this, we are looking at this from a pre-tribulation rapture, pre-millennial tribulation, dispensational point of view. Now we will re, now we'll resume our study of the things which will take place after this because those are those we were looking at the things that the churches, we reviewed the churches, we covered the last two uh, churches in the seven letters uh, which covered the church of Philadelphia and we covered the uh, church of uh, Laodicea uh, more a little bit about that here in just a little bit but remember that those are the, that's the things which are we we looked at the things which were which were the things which are and now we're looking at the things which will take place after this this is the things from Revelation chapter 4 through 22 and uh, and we'll be covering those things uh, <clears throat> as we go along so uh, let's just uh, read the passage from Revelation 4. This is the entire, entire chapter of, of uh, Revelation chapter 4. That's 11 verses, so it's not too long. But after these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven. And one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices, seven lamps of fire, were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. In the, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, 
The third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. By the way, that's the eternal name of God, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So where did the church go? From Revelation 4 through the end of the book, the church isn't mentioned again even once. The church goes off the air because it went up in the air. At the end of Revelation 3, the Lord called the church to meet him in the air. The saints entered the opening, the, the saints entered the open door to heaven and are now with Christ, as we see in that picture. Here's a scripture we can see uh, these some of these things revealed. John 14, 3, this is very familiar, all this Jesus speaking. He says, He's talking to his disciples, I think, in the upper room. And if I go and he's, he's explaining to them uh, about where he's going, but he says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And then so when we see the church again, she will be a bride adorned by her husband. We'll see that later, later on in, in the book of Revelation. So during the Philadelphian period, remember we talked about the Philadelphian church. The Philadelphian church was the church. Uh, of uh, the faithful, called the faithful church, the persevering church. And so we talked about that. That is the church that we believe is going to be, the, that the, you know, the, the church that's going to be raptured. I believe we're living, and that's the, the church of Philadelphia and the church of Laodicea are probably the best descriptors of the church that, uh, church that we live, uh, that we see now on earth. We have a lukewarm church, and then we have a remnant or the, 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 the uh, on-fire church, which, which is the, Philadelphia or the faithful church and so at when it, when he said when when this uh, says during the, uh, the during the Philadelphian period of the church in other words we are living in the Philadelphian ch- the period of the church there are the faith the faithful of the church the persevering church uh, that uh, that will be raptured and here's a couple of rapture scriptures to uh, just uh, to support that first Seth first Thessalonians 4 17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Caught up. And 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 51 through 52 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. The so-called church left behind is just an organization. We describe that as Laodicean church, the lukewarm church. The contented, this is the church that is contented to be where they are, lukewarm, no fire. You know, just teach me what I uh, preach and teach what I want to hear, and uh, and don't cause me to do anything or to act holy or whatever. In other words, the, the greasy grace church, I guess you want to call it, the false church called the great harlot. We'll meet again the next Sunday after the rapture, and we'll hardly miss a member. Why? Because they only profess to be Christians but never were. Although, even in the Laodicean church, 
when Jesus was talking to them in their church, they they uh, they he did give them an opportunity to repent and uh, become overcomers, uh, even in this church. So there will be some missing or missing from that church, but not all. Uh, they will go through the great tribulation period. God made promises to the real church that he would deliver us from judgment. Beginning in Revelation 6, these judgments begin but are not meant for the church. If the church remained in the world, it would run contrary to God's grace. Chapter 4 begins a whole new day in Revelation. In chapter 1, we saw Jesus high and lifted up. In chapters 2 and 3, we saw the things that are in the lives of the church age, and the church age continues on through to, into till today. And now we're, start, we're starting our look at what comes after these things, an entirely different scene and subject. When the church arrives in heaven, it is no longer called the church. After all, the word, word church isn't a name but a definition, meaning a group of people called out of the world. Ecclesia is the, is the proper name, word for church. In heaven, the church is represented by 24 elders. More on that in a little bit later. So in this third and final section of Revelation, the chapters 4 through 22, like I said earlier, let's remind ourselves that Jesus Christ is central. He's the main thing. He directs all the event, events as we bring them to a successful but determined conclusion. He is there, the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne. We'll see that in seven, 17 when we get to it. Uh, and that won't be next. It'll be couple of lessons on down the road. Jesus Christ is a lamb slain for the sins of the world. He's the lamb who is our shepherd, guiding us to springs of living water. But now he is also the one who will judge. So after Jesus snatches his church out of the world, the rapture, the scene follows us from earth to heaven. This is a radical change and a journey only hosted by the, uh, the Holy Spirit. Only he could describe things in heaven as easily and clearly as what has, was happening on the earth. If a person wrote about heaven, we would hear about all kinds of wild and startling things. That's one way you can tell a book is false. In other words, if you're reading a book and they're talking about all these things that they saw, sensational things like that, you might want to suspect that a little bit because, uh, you know, they're seeing with their eyes of, of, of their sense eyes. And so you don't have sensational here in Revelation, although it is spectacular. But when we say that, we simply move to heaven and the scene is awe-inspiring, but it lacks the sensational we would have we would have put into it. In other words, in our human understanding, if we if we were to try to describe it, uh, we would probably go overboard. You know how we exaggerate uh, sometimes, so that's the way it would probably be if the book was written uh, by, from the sensational standpoint. The church is now the priesthood of believers with the great high priest, Jesus our Savior. Heavenly scenes and creatures greet us in this section in chapters 4 and 5 before our attention is drawn back to earth, where at the opening of the great tribulation, the four horsemen are to ride. We, may get, we, we should get into that a little bit into the next lesson. Uh, so what does the Holy Spirit reveal to John about heaven? What do we see? So first we see the throne of God. As the door to heaven opens, we first find our way to God. We first find our way to God. Just imagine. The first thing we see is Jesus Christ in his threefold office of prophet, priest, and king, and we fall down in, in worship of Jesus Christ as God. In John's vision, he enters heaven with his senses engaged. He sees and hears things when he walks through the open door. Remember what it says in, in, in the first verse of, of uh, chapter 4. It says, Behold, a door standing open in heaven. 
And so this is one of the four open doors in Revelation we see. The Lord Jesus talking to the church in Philadelphia says, I have set before you an open door. That was in, in uh, chapter 3, verse 8. That describes a door of opportunity for giving out the word of God. The Lord stands before the door to your heart and knocks, asking if you hear his voice, open the door and he will come in and fellowship with you. That's in, in three, uh, verse 3. And that's actually talking to the church of Laodicea. And then the third is this open door in heaven. Uh, this is the way to God uh, through Jesus Christ. And then heaven opens again at the end of the great tribulation and outrides Jesus on a white horse, ready to judge all unrighteousness and rebellion against God and to establish his kingdom at last. The open door to heaven has always been the Lord Jesus Christ. He always is the one who will come to the door of your heart. That is the wondering glory of it all. So he says, come up here is heaven's invitation to John. And it's an invitation to all of the all of the fellowship who knew Christ as Savior. John, the last living of the original apostles and being seen now as representative of the church, is saying, in effect, we heard it, we saw it, and now we're letting you know how you can have fellowship with Jesus Christ. And one of these days, you'll be going through that open door also, and we all will be. 1 John 1.3 says, That which we have heard and seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. You know, John wrote five books. He wrote uh, the Gospel of John, and then he wrote First, Second, and Third John, and then he wrote, uh, he, he wrote the book of Revelation. And some scholars actually say that uh, they were all written within a few years of each other. Matter of fact, Revelation might have been written before the epistles, before the epistles of, uh, or the three letters, First John, and uh, but you know the dating is kind of varied right there. But so they're all written. Matter of fact, John wrote these. These these were the last big books written, I believe, in the New Testament. Was was John's gospel, the three epistles of John, and the book of Revelation. All somewhere in the neighborhood of eighty to ninety five, somewhere in that area, uh, A.D. So talking about that, why, so what, you know, the, the thing about it is, what, why do we study the book of Revelation? Well, three things. There's a lot of things we do, but, you know, we, we talk about the study of Revelation. But, you know, why, why is it important to study the book of Revelation? First of all, Jesus said, it, I mean, the, the word says that it's a, if you study it, it's a blessing. And uh, it's a blessing to all who read it. And, but the, one of the, two of the, three of the things that, we study the book of Revelation 4 is because, you know, we talked about this before. The first three chapters belong to, uh, are talking about, the, or at least chapter 2 and 3, are talking directly to the churches, and then it goes from there. The church is removed or raptured, and then it goes into future events that we won't, if we believe that way, that we won't be a part of. So, um, so why do we study the book of Revelation? In order to produce, keep this in mind as we're studying this, you know, it's, it's more or less, this, this is the direction we're going. It's to produce holy living in an unholy age. Do we live in an unholy age? Anybody agree with me? It's, it's unholy, about as unholy as it gets right now. So to produce, a holy, to produce holy living, in other words, when we study the book of Revelation, we see the things, we see how imminent it is according to the signs that we see and the, and the things that are going on, then it should produce holy living in our lives. That we should have a drive for evangelism, and then we should have a zeal for missions because not only should we have a drive for evangelism and see people uh, brought in, but we also to send people to, to preach the gospel around the world because if the time is imminent, that means 
that there's there's people out there that need to hear about Jesus. So, and the book, and you know, Luke twenty one twenty says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. That kind of is pretty uh, pretty much in perspective for nowadays, isn't it? To see all the armies that are surrounding Jerusalem. So, you know, when you see that, we, we have to recognize that the time is near. So that's why we study the book of Revelation, because the time in here is near. And then Hebrews 10.25, of course, says, Not forsaking our assembling together, as is the, heart, the, the uh, habit of some, but encouraging one another. In other words, when we come to church, when we study the book of Revelation, when we see the words that are written and the things that are happening, we need to be encouraging to one another. And all the more, as you see the, the day drawing near, in other words, the day of the Lord, the time of tribulation, uh, the time of um, uh, the 70th week and all of that is considered to be the day, day of the Lord. So anyway, just a side note there, a rabbit trail if you want to call it. So and it all begins for the church at the rapture. The Greek word for caught up is harpazo, meaning caught up, raptured, and or snatched up. That, that The sound that signals this amazing event is a voice that sounds like a trumpet. Of course, it's Jesus' voice calling the church to meet him in the air. 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, verses 16 and 17 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together, harpazoed. We shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, to, to meet the Lord in the air, and thus, thus we shall always be with the Lord. So it pulled John up, and someday it will pull us up to, um, to when we're raptured. See, the rapture occurs in the time when. So when we're what we're talking here. So let me let me get this first. At once, at once, John was in the spirit and saw God's throne in heaven. So all of a sudden, he's he's talking about he's sent, the last thing we see about the churches is he's he says. Uh, the, the Spirit of God says, let he who has an ear uh, hear what the Spirit of the Lord has to say to the churches. And then, right, and then all, all of a sudden, he's in, in, when we go to chapters, of course, there weren't chapters. The book wasn't written with chapters and verse numbers or anything like that. But the next statement is, come up here and I will show you things which will take place after this in verse 1. So at once, John was in the Spirit and saw God's throne in heaven. So the Spirit, so that's, that's what he, and, and remember what it said back there in the twinkling of an eye, that's what happens. Once the things over, when the church has fulfilled the role of, of, of grace and all grace has, has been administered, that's going to be administered, and God says it's time, then that's when this, this will happen. And this is just giving us a picture of what we're seeing, and this is what we're seeing in this representation. John, representing the church, he is now being raptured and called up there, uh, called up into heaven. And so immediately, that's, that's what I'm saying, that's the twinkling of an eye, immediately describes how brief the time, one of the characteristics of the rapture. Paul tells us in, in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 52, that we were caught up in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. That's like one one-thousandth of a second. You can't blink that fast. That's how quick the rapture is going to be. Immediately, straightway, at once, from the closing of the church age to the opening of the things which must take place. After this, and God is the only one that knows when that will happen. John was found in the Spirit. The Holy the Holy Spirit guides John into the new truth and shows him uh, things to come. John sixteen uh, verse thirteen. Uh, the first part of that verse says, 
when the Holy, when the Holy Spirit, the Spirit, Spirit of the truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. So when, we, when that statement is made, John was found in the Spirit, it's a term used of being holy in union with the Holy Spirit and totally yielded to him. It is a picture of supernatural change and transition, a great picture of the rapture. So let's talk about a little bit about the great escape, or I, I call it the great escape, but the, it's rapture uh, from a from a pre-tribulationist point of view, and that's what I'm saying. We we've talked this, and I just want to a little bit further into why we why we uh, take this, why most of us. And remember, this is this is a point of view. There's pre-tribulation, there's mid-tribulation, there's post-tribulation. You can go study all those you want to, but these are, I think these are some of the explanations of why and the reasoning why we take a, a pre-tribulation point of view. In eschatology, it is important to remember that almost all Christians, Christians agree on these three things. One, there is, a coming, there is coming a time of great tribulation such as the world has never seen. Two, after the tribulation, Christ will return to establish his kingdom on earth. And three, there will be a rapture, a translation from mortality to, mortality to immortality for believers. The question is, when does, the, when does the rapture occur in relation to the tribulation and the second coming of Christ? There are generally three main theories or opinions of the timing of the catching away or the rapture of the overcomers of the church. And, you know, I use that word, we use that word overcomers because if you look in the, in the letters to the churches, the, 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 he's always addressing he who overcomes will do this he who overcomes will do that so it's overcomers that are actually going to be raised up in that time or, or be brought up so there are three generally three uh, main categories that we have the pre-tribulation which where is, is where Christ catches away the overcomers in the church before the tribulation we have mid-tribulation Christ catches away the overcomers in the middle of the tribulation and post-tribulation, Christ catches away the overcomers at the end of the tribulation. And when you study these, they're, they're, they're a lot of the writers and people that believe those other points of view bring up some very valid points. So you just you, you have to look and do your study on that and decide uh, which way you want to go. Or you can take the stand, like um, I think it was during camp meeting last year, and Pastor Eddie Martis was asked the question about whether he was pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib, and he says, he says, well, all I can say, I think his answer was, he says, you just need to be prepared no matter what because if, even if you don't, if it's not pre-trib and you go mid-trib, God's going to take care of you. If you even go to the post-trib, God's going to take care of you. You just have to be in right position and in right preparation, and that's exactly what we do as a church is, and like Pastor, all his, his preaching, he says it many times. He's not trying to scare you. He's trying to prepare you, and that's the whole deal about coming to church and sitting under the Word is to be prepared uh, so you can go. You know you've been equipped with the things to do. That should prepare you no matter what point of view you take. But this, <laughs> that's right, he did. Yeah, pan trip. He said he's pan trip. Everything's going to pan out in the end anyway. So <laughs> there you go. That's good. I couldn't remember that part, but I, I do now. Uh, so the, the teaching is taking, this teaching is taking the pre-tribulation viewpoint, and here are a few of the reasons why. Pre-tribulationism teaches that the rapture occurs before the tribulation starts. That's pretty, pretty obvious. At that time, the church will meet Christ in the air, and then sometime after that, the Antichrist is revealed, and the tribulation begins. In other words, the rapture 
and Christ's second coming to set up his kingdom are separated by at least seven years. According to this view, the church does not experience any of the tribulation. Scripturally, the tribulation, the pre-tribulation view, has much to commend it. For example, according to these scriptures and others, the church is not appointed to wrath. 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how, how you turned to God. This is Paul to the church at Thessalonica. To God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So it's right, right there he's writing. This is Paul writing to this church and he's saying that Jesus is coming to deliver us from the wrath to come. And, and believers will not be taken over, overtaken by the day of the Lord, which we said earlier, the day of the Lord is, is the time of uh, Jacob's trouble or the, or the 70th week. What was that? Was I echoing? Okay, I thought I heard something. Maybe I'm hurting. <laughs> okay. Uh, I thought God was calling me to heaven and y'all were going to be left behind. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> Or either y'all were going and I was going to be left behind. So glad y'all are still here. Okay. <laughs> you missed it. And believers will not be overtaken by the day of the Lord. Remember the day of the Lord, talking about the 70th week or Jacob's trouble or, uh, as Jesus said, a time of great trouble. First Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 9. And I, I wanted, this is a long passage, but I think it's, it's very uh, good for all of it to be read. And he says, because he's talking about the day of the Lord, but concerning the times and the seasons. See, he's talking to the church of Thessalonica because back then they thought it was going to, when Jesus says, I will come again and receive you unto myself, they thought that was imminent, that was going to happen really soon. So they were wondering what was going to happen. Uh, and they, so they had a lot of questions for Paul. He's trying to answer all of these questions. But he says, concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should not overtake, should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see it again. We're not appointed to wrath. The church, that, that's, why we, that's why we take that viewpoint. We believe that the rapture will occur before the wrath of the tribulation starts. The church of Philadelphia has promised to be kept from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world. It says that in Revelation 3.10. It says, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Note that the promise is not preservation through the trial, but deliverance from the hour, that is, from the time period of the trial. In other words, we're talking about Jacob's trouble again or Daniel's 70th week. This is the time um, that we won't go through, uh, we believe. Pre-tribulationism also finds support in what is not found in Scripture. The word church, uh, like we said earlier, the appears 19 times in the first three chapters of Revelation, but significantly the word is not used again until chapter 22. In other words, 
in the entire lengthy description of, of the tribulation revelation, the word church is noticeably absent. In fact, the Bible never uses the word church in a passage relating to the tribulation. Pre-tribulation, and, and a lot of that goes back, you know, a lot of people will argue that part saying, well, if you go back and look in, uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll see where Jesus is talking about uh, things that will happen during that period of time. But you, one thing you got to keep in context in that scriptures when he's talking about those things right there, he is addressing the nation of the Jews. He's addressing the nation of Israel, and it's not for the Gentiles yet. He's talking to the nation of Israel. And so when he says things like uh, two, will be, one, two will be on the roof, one will be taken, one will be not, yeah, that, that, that could apply both ways. But generally speaking, he's talking about the, the time of trouble the, the Israelites are going to be going through there because the, 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 uh, the book of Revelation has not been revealed yet, nor has the rapture or the resurrection been revealed yet. So things like that, are, are, there's things in, the, in those books that we see that people use to say, well, these show that, you know, but you got to keep it in context of who he's talking to, who his audience is. It's the, it's the Israelites. And remember, the Israelites are going to go through, their Jews are going to go through the tribulation period, if they're not born again. So, now that, uh, so, uh, pre-tribulation is the only theory which clearly maintains the distinction between Israel and the church and God's separate plans for each. Clarification on that. There's still a plan of salvation, and it still applies to both Israel and to the church or to the Gentiles or whatever like that. But there's a plan like we've talked about before, and we've seen that in, in uh, the 77s of Daniel 9.24, it decreed upon Daniel's people, the Jews, and Daniel's holy city, which is Jerusalem. This prophecy makes it plain that the 70th week, the tribulation, is a time of purging and restoration for Israel and Jerusalem, not for the church. Okay? So, also, pre-tribulationism has historical support. Y'all remember the, the passage in Scripture when, in John when, when uh, Jesus is on shore and uh, this is after he's raptured, I mean after he's resurrected and he's in there and, you know, this is the passage where uh, uh, Peter he gets up and says, well, I'll I, I go a fishing. He's going back to fishing. In other words, he's, he's, he's going to go back to fishing. So he goes and fishes and then he sees Jesus or they see a man on the, on the shore and uh, they recognize him, or, or, or so he hollers out to him. He says, "Throw your!" They're not catching fish. How's the fish? And he says, "We're not doing any good." He says, "Cast your net on the other side." They cast it, and they get a net full of fish. And so he recognizes at that point, he recognizes it's Jesus. So he throws off his. I mean, he puts back on his robe and he swims. And this is the passage where Jesus is telling him, uh, Peter, telling Peter, he's or asking Peter three times. He said, "Do you love me, Peter?" And oh, anyway, this is what's leading up to. This and Peter makes the comment. He says, "Well, what about him?" Talking about John, you know, this is in the book of John, and uh, so he said, "What about him?" Because he'd already told Peter that he's going to be crucified, or be, you know, his arms are going to be spread. He's going to end up having a crucifixion, and he's going to be martyred in that direction, in that way. And he's already told him about him. So he says to uh, uh, Jesus, "He said, what about that man?" And this is Jesus's response to him. He says. He, Jesus said to him, if, it, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? In other words, the point was 
it makes no difference. We're talking about you right now. We're not talking about John. And that's, that's the way you have to carry that around there. But that shows, it says, from this passage, it would seem that the early church viewed Christ's return as imminent, that he could return at any moment. Otherwise, the rumor would not have persisted that Jesus would return within John's lifetime. Eminence, which is incompatible with the other two rapture theories, in other words, mid-tribulation and uh, post-tribulation, is a key tenet of pre-tribulationism. And so we all should have that happening. Because, see, when we say pre, it's imminent, you can't say that with post, uh, you know, the rapture, because, you know, you're, you'll see the seven years of tribulation before, and, and the rapture occurs afterwards. That's, that does, that's not compatible. Mid-tribulation, the same way. You go through three and a half years of the tribulation, and then, then the rapture occurs. So that's why they say it's not uh, compatible or it's incompatible with the other two theories. So when he says, when we're talking about it being imminent, that's the, that's the stand as believers that we should all take. It is imminent. I mean, Jesus could come at any moment. There's nothing to stop him except for God given, given the time frame. So anyway, keep that in mind. Imminence should be always on your mind. That's why you should live your life as though Jesus could come in the next hour or in the next minute. And finally, and of course, we all can learn from that. We all could... That's why you need to have a mindset of repentance and asking for forgiveness a lot. And I don't know about y'all, but I do that a lot. So anyway, finally, the pre-tribulation view seems to be the most in keeping with God's character and his desire to deliver the righteous from the judgment of the world. Biblical examples of God's deliverance from which wrath include Noah, who was delivered from the worldwide flood. It was Lot, who, delivered from, who was delivered from Sodom, and Rahab, who was delivered from Jericho. You can read uh, you can read Second Peter uh, two six through nine and and uh, at least a couple of those are covered in that. So now, on to the rest of chapter four. What what we see, what we're seeing, and what John is seeing, we see God's throne. Now, <clears throat> for the first time, John sees the throne, the center of attraction. God's throne represents the universal sovereignty and rule. It means He. Is in, is in control. This is the center of this universe, and the Lord is in charge of all events. And you can look further into some th throne scriptures there if you want to read those for additional study. I encourage you to do that. Uh, we won't cover those this time. The throne of grace for the church age now becomes the throne of judgment. So he's, he who sits on the throne, now it becomes a time of judgment, the throne of judgment, as we see uh, Daniel's 70th week opening up. This is God the Father's throne, but the three persons of the Trinity, Trinity are distinguished. God the Holy Spirit, God the Father, and God the Son. The Trinity is on the throne. You can see those if you want to look those up and see and see what I'm saying. But what we, we did our study on, on uh, defending the faith and talked about the Trinity. Well, they're, they're all represented right here. All we see here is beautiful, vibrant color. John could distinguish no form of a person on the throne. What did he say? He said there was one. He said there was one on the throne. What was that? It, it, this is how he says it. He said, immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one set on the throne. He didn't say it. it it's capitalized in, in the uh, New King James Version, but and so it's referencing God, but he says one set on the throne. So he knows, and I think he's acknowledging right there that this one is Jesus or, or God. Uh, the, so, he could distinguish no form of a person on the throne, only the brilliance 
and brightness of precious stones. Got to understand, this is things he's seeing in heaven no man has ever seen. And so to see those things and try to describe them in human terms would be probably an impossibility. And, and so he's trying the best he can to describe these things. The Jasper stone uh, was the last stone identified in the breastplate of the high priest. You can see that in Exodus 28.20. It was first in the foundation of the New Jer Jerusalem and also the first seen in the wall of the New Jerusalem. You can see those uh, references in 21, 18 through 19, if you want to go, go ahead and look on that. So anyway, the the, uh, the Jasper stone, it was mostly purple. Some say it's almost like a diamond. The Sardius stone is the sixth stone uh, in the foundation of New Jerusalem, a fiery red stone. The Sardius was the first in the breastplate of the high priest, rep representing the tribe of Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob. And Christ, the Son of God, is the firstborn from the dead first in true resurrection and first in preeminence in all things. That's why he's called the firstborn from the dead. He was the, he was the only one that actually, he is the only one that has actually experienced true resurrection. Rainbow is the Greek word iris, iris or iris, which can also mean halo. So obviously there was a halo. Usually a rainbow is, is many colors, but here it's emerald green. And after the judgment of the flood, the rainbow appears as a reminder of God's covenant not to destroy the earth again with the flood. That was God's covenant after uh, when Noah, after you know when the ark was put in the sky. Now it appears uh, before the judgment of the great tribulation as a reminder that God will not use the flood again. The earth is going to be judged in many horrific ways, but it's not going to be judged by a flood. So next we see the twenty-four elders. Who are they and what does it mean? There are several suggestions and explanations of those of who these are, but one of the best explanations of all that I've seen is, and I've read a lot, I tell you, there's a commentaries, I mean, there's a lot of descriptions on here, but this is one I think that, that, the 24, that fits this as good as any of them, is that the 24 elders are the symbolic representatives of the faithful, redeemed, and glorified people of God. Their white robes, are the robes which are promised to the faithful. We see that in Revelation 3, 4. And their crowns, which the Greek for that is stephanoi, meaning a victor's crown, are the crowns with which those who are faithful unto death are to receive. We see that in Revelation 2, 10 in one of the letters. <coughs> the thrones are the thrones which Jesus promised to those who forsook all and followed him. And Jesus said this in Matthew 19, 27 through 29. The description of the 24 elders seems to fit well with the promises made to the faithful throughout Scripture. So why 24? We know that 12 is the biblical number for divine governance, and this, this would be 12 times 2, in other words, 24. In the Old Testament, there were 24 courses of serving priests. Each course had a presiding officer known as the elder of the priest. This could be a picture of the heavenly priesthood at the heavenly temple. Remember, uh, 1 Peter 2, 5 through 9 says it's talking about the priesthood of the believers. You know, he said we're, we're, we're told that we're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, right? So this could be representing that. And we also must consider an explanation which identifies with the patriarchs and the apostles. In the holy city, the New Jerusalem, the name of the 12 patriarchs, the 12 patriarchs, who are the 12 patriarchs? That's the, the 12 sons of Jacob, right, starting with Reuben, all the way through Benjamin. And so these are the 12 
so the names of the 12 patriarchs are on the 12 gates, and the names of the 12 apostles are on the foundation stones of the wall. There are 24 elders because the church is composed of Jews and Gentiles. So we see the, 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 the church, of the Jews that are in the church, we see the Gentiles that are in church. There were originally 12 tribes, but now it's as if the tribes have been doubled, Jew and Gentile into one. It reminds us of this passage that Paul wrote in Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. He says, talking about Jesus, he says, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, Jew and Gentile, as he's talking about one, he has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments containing ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two. That's the church thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby thereby putting to death the enmity. In other words, Jews hated Gentiles, Gentiles hated Jews. Now in, in the church, they can become one in Christ Jesus as the body of Christ. Um, so one commentator says that the 40, 22, 42, 24 elders stand for the church in its totality. We must remember that this is a vision of what shall be. The 24 elders stand as representatives of the whole church, which one day in glory will praise and worship in the presence of God himself. That's just some viewpoints right there of what what the 24 stand for. And so uh, there's others, but I I believe those kind of give us an idea of what, what we're probably looking at, why there's 24 and, you know, the numbers of 12 on both sides. Before we go to the next section about the glass sea and the four creatures, I want to dwell on verse 5. We, I, didn't, I didn't cover it in this, but uh, the, verse 5 in, in this passage, if you go back to verse 5, it says, and from the throne, uh, we need to do this before we get to this next part, but and from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So that... I, I, I left that part out, so I just want to cover it here uh, right quick. What what that's saying is um, uh, two things. When we're talking about, uh, and from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Well, where have we heard that before? Anybody want to venture a guess or just make a statement that where, where we've heard that before? Anybody? Well, I'll, I'll tell you. It's in Exodus uh 2018. Remember the time when the when the Jews were in the in the wilderness, and they were at Mount Sinai receiving the the law. Moses was receiving the law, and remember the mountain was so terrifying to uh, to the Jews to the people that they just come out of Egypt. They were around the base of this mountain. It was so terrifying because there was thunderings, there was lightnings, there was smoke, there was voices sounding as the voices louder than they can could say, and they they told Moses. Uh, we don't want to hear the voice of God. It's too scary. We want you to hear, and you bring it back down to us and tell us what it means. So that, but that, what, what, Jesus, what, what, um, this is what this is showing us is a, a scene similar to that of what they're seeing at, at Mount Sinai when the law was given to Moses. And so what Moses or what God's telling the, them at that point, He's telling them that this is a, at, when He's telling the Jews there. He's saying to the Jews, he said, this is going to be a time of trial and testing. And so the same way for this, what he's saying here when we see these, these uh, lightnings, thunderings, and voices, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a prequel, to, or it's, it's telling us right then that, 
that, that, that's a time of judgment, a time of trial, a time of testing is coming. So I, I think you needed to hear that and how it relates back to Exodus. You can go back and read that if you want to in Exodus 20, 18. I didn't put it in the notes. I should have, but write it down. Exodus 20, verse 18. And the other part of that is uh, the, where it says, uh, seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, that could be a little confusing because people might ask, well, are there seven Holy Spirits? Are there seven spirits of, of, of God? No, that's not what it's saying. It's just the seven spirits of God. As If we look at the number seven, seven is the number of perfection and completion. And so what that's actually showing is it's one Holy Spirit with the seven attributes uh, or empowerments that are, are given to it. Not that it's limited to these seven, but if you go back to uh, uh, Isaiah 11.2, write that down and go back and look at it. Isaiah 11.2 says, it, and, he's, and it's talking about, well, actually, let me read it out of, out of my notes. I, I brought some notes from the wilderness study we did on there, and we talked about this, the lampstand with the seven lamps is the seven spirits of God. The seven lampstands of the golden lampstand point us to the sevenfold spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Jesus, while on the earth, was endowed with these seven attributes. Isaiah prophesied of this concerning the coming of Christ and the sevenfold spirit. So look, if you read 11, uh, Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2, it says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. Talking specifically, that's about Jesus. And it says right here, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. There's seven attributes, the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. All of these are attributes of the Holy Spirit. All of these were upon Jesus when he walked on here. And remember, when we're talking about this, it says in that passage right there, seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne. When we talked about this in the wilderness study, the, the Holy Spirit was represented in the, in the furnishings inside the tabernacle, the, the, candle, the candlestick, not the candlestick, but the lampstand, the golden lampstand, which the menorah, as we call it, had seven, it has a central branch, and it had three branches on each side. And that's exactly what it's describing here is those three. The middle branch is the Spirit of the Lord, and the, two branch, the three branches on each side are the wisdom, understanding, counsel, and might, and knowledge, and fear of the Lord. Sorry I didn't include that, but I just wanted to... Uh, bring that forth in there. So let's go on to the do the glass sea and the four creatures. A sea of glass like crystal, that's in verse 6, describes its appearance, calm and restful. The sea may, may represent the holiness and righteousness of God, bringing the church to its rest, no longer tossed on a stormy sea. Many times the sea is used as a representation of a great multitude of people. Some commentators say that this sea of glass is a picture of the multitude of the redeemed before the throne at peace and crystal clear as glass, showing their purity. Consider this from Dr. Hilton Sutton, who wrote the book, Revelation Revealed. I thought it was very good, uh, and he's a pretty qualified expert on this, on the, on the book of Revelation. But this is, he says, uh, talking about the sea of glass, or the, uh, actually the, the Bible says, like at, it's, it's actually it says as, it says like as, a sea of glass. It doesn't say it's actually a sea of glass. It says like as a sea of glass, if in the in the New King James or in the King James original uh, version. He says, "This is not a body of water." In Scripture, a description of ma of a mass of people accompany accompanies the word "sea" whenever it is used without reference to the name or location of an existing 
body of water. In other words, it didn't say the Sea of Galilee or it didn't say the Great Sea. It says, the, it says a sea. And so the Crystal Sea is a great company of people standing before the throne of God. They are referred to as a sea because of their vast numbers and as crystal because of their right standing before God. Remember, it's not like it's a sea of glass. It's kind of like when we were down at Canton. Don, remember the couple of days in the, that little pond that's there at that place where we stayed? Some mornings we woke up and the water was just, I mean, it was just like a sea of, it was like a sea of glass. There was no ripple or nothing until a bug or something landed in it. But it was like that. It was calm. It was a sea of, of glass. But when the wind picked up, then, you know, you could see the ripples and the waves and things like that. Well, and this sea of glass means it's there. This, this is the church at rest, or it could represent the church being at rest. There's no storms, no uh, wind blowing, nothing, nothing going on there. Just completely calm and at rest. So since the uh, so the sea became their vast, it says they are referred to as a sea because of their vast numbers, and as crystal because of their right standing before God. Since the twenty-four elders are representative representatives. The church whom they represent must also be in heaven. Thus, the crystal sea before the throne is the symbol of the whole church company in heaven. Crystal is the only earthly substance in which flaws cannot be hidden. In fact, the Lord which says, "In fact, the Lord will present to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but be holy and without blemish." We can see that in Ephesians five twenty-seven. So now let's go to the four living creatures, or beasts, as in the original King James Version, uh, which is the Greek word for that is zoe, from which we get the word zoo, uh, also surrounds the throne. Like the cherubim and the seraphim, see those uh, references in Ezekiel and Isaiah, these living creatures were alert and aware with eyes before and behind. pastor's preaching on that now, so I'm not going to do a whole lot of description about this because you need to see the creature features that he's talking about in his messages uh, coming up in this series that's going on. So we won't elaborate a lot on this, but there's some things here just to, just to add to it, I think. Some Bible scholars say they are, a, they are an exalted order of angelic beings, such as such much like the cherubim and the seraphim. So uh, having six wings, two covering their eyes, which means they're, they're in humility, two covering their feet, which means obedience, swift to do the will of God, and two for flying. Billy Brim in her Revelation syllabus calls them the guardians of the glory, declares of his holiness and his name. So in a contradistinction between the beast we see here, it's interpreted as living creatures, but King James says the beast. But anyway, in contradistinction, the beast that it's listed in chapter 13 in the King James in Greek is therion, meaning the generic term for wild animal or figuratively Figuratively speaking, a brutal, bestial nature. It's a totally different thing we're, we're seeing. We're seeing a living creature versus a wild animal. In other words, more like a domesticated versus a wild, brutal beast. So there's a difference. And we'll get to that when we get to chapter 13. We start talking about uh, the beast and, and all those things. And another note from Strong's 2342 number, uh, the Therion, or Therion, or however you say that, it never refers to animals used for sacrifice. So it could never refer to a lamb. It could never refer to an ox. It could never refer to one of those animals that were sacrificed on the altar uh, of God. So uh, that's a little di distinction on there. Uh, these living creatures, these four living creatures, identify with the four Gospels. The first is a lion representing the Lord Jesus as, as the king. 
the lion of the tribe of Judah, everything we, he does in the gospel of Matthew, he does as a king. The second living creature is an ox, the servant, servant animal domesticated. In the gospel of Mark, Christ is represented as the servant Lord who became the sacrifice of all mankind. The third uh, living creature has a man's face. The gospel of Luke represents the Lord Jesus as the son of man. He is God incarnate. And the fourth living creature is like the flying eagle, a picture of deity of Christ, of the deity of Christ as seen in the Gospel of John. Now here I found another uh, a, another explanation of that from a from a uh, man that wrote a, a it's a book called the Apocalypse of of John, which is about the Book of Revelation. is one of the early interpretations of the of the 20th century. I think his book was written in 1906, but he wrote this about this, trying to explain the symbolism of these living creatures. And it sounds like a, a, a pretty strong interpretation, but he says the four living creatures stand for everything that is noblest, strongest, wisest, and swiftest in nature. Each of them has a preeminence in his own particular sphere and world. The lion is supreme among beasts, king of the jungle, right? The ox is supreme among cattle. In other words, he's the strongest among all uh, burden animals. And then the eagle is supreme among the birds. And then man is supreme among, supreme among all creatures. The lion is the king of the beasts, the noblest of them all. The laboring ox is the strongest of the beasts. The eagle is the swiftest, swiftest of all birds. And man is the wisest in all creation. So then, the, the beasts represent all the greatness and the strength and the beauty of nature. Here we see mature praising, we see, here we see nature praising God as it represented here. In the verses which are to follow, we see the 24 elders praising God. And when we put the two pictures together, we see the, 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 the four beasts and we see the 24 elders praising God. And when we see, put the two pictures together, we get the complete picture of both nature and man engaged in constant praise and adoration of God. The ceaseless activity of nature under the hand of God is a ceaseless tribute of praise. I thought that was good because it, because it goes into what we see in this first great worship scene we see in heaven. Each of the creatures has six wings and circles the throne. They say day and night, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. They echo what Jesus Christ said of himself in Revelation 1.8. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the present, the past, and the future. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The one who was and who is and who is to come. He is the great I am. The creatures worship the creator as the triune God. Holy, holy, holy. Worship is the eternal activity of heaven. They continually give Jesus glory honor and thanks for his attributes and because of who he is. The elders, too, fall down before God, before God's throne, worshiping God for who he is and what he has done. They cast their crowns before Jesus' feet as an act of submission and worship. Remember, the 24 elders represent the church, submission and worship. He is truly the only one worthy to wear a crown. They acknowledge Jesus Christ as God and creator of all things. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. God created this earth and everything in it according to his plan and purpose. We may not understand all that he's doing, but this is, this is the way he wanted it. It's his universe, and he's in charge, and one day all of us will cast down our crowns just like the 24 elders did 
and proclaimed, Holy, 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 just like the four living creatures do, and worship him because, because of all that he is. Amen to that? You agree? We will worship him and forever and ever. So that concludes chapter 4. Did you all get something out of that? I hope you did. We'll move on to chapter 5 next week, okay? Well, we want to thank you for joining us on our podcast today. We pray that you heard from God and that this message was for you. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button and leave us a review. It helps us reach more people with this message. Arena of Life takes pride in connecting to God, to church, and to people. And we want to connect with you. So don't forget to check us out on all social media platforms, to check out our website, arenaoflifechurch.org, and to download the Church Center app and to choose Arena of Life as your church. And a special thanks to those who make a difference by giving generously. You help us change lives and produce weekly content like this that reaches the world. If you're interested in partnering with us, you can give by clicking the link in our bio through the website arenaoflifechurch.org or through the Church Center app. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.